Colossians 3:18 through 4:1. <clears throat> wives submit to your husbands as is, is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children obey your parents in every in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Uh, dear Father, we are grateful for your word and instruction. Uh, we're grateful that that will bring life to our relationships. And we pray that we would approach each verse with humility, that we would look introspectively. And we pray against wives looking at husbands and seeing their shortcomings, husbands looking at wives and seeing theirs, uh, children looking at their parents and saying they don't deserve to be obeyed, and parents demanding obedience without love and humility. And Lord, we just pray that we would see our own shortcomings and see that the way you designed our relationships is better than our first instincts. Your way is better. Let us look at every instruction as an opportunity to love each other in a healthier way. Take our people-pleasing away and give us a desire to have sincere hearts. Help us to want to work for you and not for man. Bless Lance as he preaches your word today, and we pray as we listen that you would give us eyes to see where we need to repent, ears to hear truths that will change our hearts, minds to understand your sovereignty and love for us, and hearts to believe that you are for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, y'all. Thank you. Beautiful prayer, awesome reading. Very good. Thank you guys so much. Uh, well, we are starting a new series today on the neighborhoods, the networks, and the nations. And, um, and the reason why we're doing that is because we're all starting new rhythms. Either you just started new rhythms or you're about to start new rhythms. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us with school starting and our students going into uh, different places, different schools. Therefore, your rhythm's probably being interrupted in many ways. Even if you don't have students going to school or you're not a teacher, your rhythms are still interrupted because you've got more traffic on the road, whether it be in your neighborhoods or wherever it may be. Now, here's what I know is that all summer long, uh, you have been hearing about the Holy Spirit. Yes, you've been here for this. If you've not been here for this, this is what this church has focused on since Pentecost Sunday, which is way back in May. And if I could revisit that day, one of the things that, that, that Pastor Chris talked about that day was that we are empowered as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the other parts of the earth. That the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he empowers us to be witnesses to be missionaries, right here where we are. And it's that Greek word of, of martyr, ultimately, is where we get that word from. So you, you, you're going to be a, a martyr, and you'll be empowered to live in such a way uh, that you would represent martyrdom in one way or the other. Maybe not give your life, but certainly give up your preferences. It's the only way to live as an empowered missionary is to give up preferences. Give up what you would prefer for the sake of others. And if I could revisit that just for a moment... 
And as you enter into these new rhythms, we've got this idea of neighborhoods, networks, and nations. Our hope is that you enter into those new spaces, not just as a mom or a dad or a student, not just as an employee or an employer, but that you would enter into these spaces as a missionary, as someone who truly believes what we just talked about for the last 12 or so weeks, about being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do something you could not have done before the presence of God living in you due to your faith and repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. So, but here's what I also know is that I would be doing a really bad job as pastor of our church if we skipped over the first part. Like we could go to na- neighborhoods. We could go to our networks which are around us. We could go to the nations who are here, but if we don't first focus on what the Puritans called the little church, then we would be in, uh, in peril. And what is that little church that the Puritans called but the family? See, the first home that we have to reach for the sake of the gospel isn't your neighbor's house. You see, Jesus assumes that you know how to love yourself, love your neighbor as, your, as you know how to love yourself. Problem is, we're not real great at self-care. We're not real great at, at loving ourselves for the sake of Jesus. We just kind of either really love ourselves and really get self-absorbed, or we go on the other side of things and don't ever think about what I might need for the sake of others, and that just ultimately leads to burnout and deconstruction and all the rest. The Puritans did believe that it was uh, that our home was the little church, and I will add to that that it is our first mission. It's not just the little church. But it is our first mission is right here at home. I had a pastor and a boss that would constantly say this mantra to us as young pastors. And he would say this, if you succeed at work, but you fail at home, you fail. If you succeed at work, if you are the greatest hunter or fisherman, if you're a great hobbyist, but you neglect your family, It's all for naught. Let's just let that set in and go, okay, well, dang, if that's true, then we have a primary responsibility as mothers and as fathers to not just make babies, but make disciples in our home. And it starts with how we love one another as husbands and wives. So before I go outwards to the neighborhoods, to the networks, and to the nations, we need to first clean up our own home. I don't know about you, but this new rhythm of new school has me thinking of different things. It's almost like a new year. Like you start to think of resolutions, but those don't really last. And so you start to think like, how can I incorporate these gospel truths in intentionally parenting and fathering my kids, especially as we enter into the crazy season? How do we do this? How do we do it well? Um, It's difficult though, because we read passages like we just read and it just makes us feel awkward, doesn't it? Like if you didn't feel awkward when we're talking about slaves and masters, there's probably something wrong. Like that's just awkward. And so what we'll typically do in our culture is go, oh, well, I mean, there's, there's no way that this is for today because you see there he's talking about slaves and masters. So there's no way it actually talks about wives and husbands and parents either and fathers. So we'll just throw it all out because it, 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 it touches on something we're uncomfortable with. But perhaps there's something deeper for us. Perhaps we need to understand that that God is, in some ways, very gracious for giving instruction 
for how masters should deal with slaves and how slaves should live in that type of a relationship, particularly in first century Rome. And we get awkward about masters and slaves because we think of it through an American lens, which was awful and heinous and ethnic slavery. And that is not what was going on in first century Rome. In first century Rome, you could have been born a slave, uh, you could, have, um, uh, you could have, have been captured at war, or what was most prevalent in the days was that you sold yourself to someone because you were in debt to them. So it was almost in some ways like a credit card when you really think about it. And we do that on the regular. So maybe there's some things here that we can understand a little bit differently and go, okay, if it wasn't ethnic, it was socioeconomic, and this was really about classes and not ethnic slavery, then we can start to go, okay, maybe there's some value here in understanding the culture, but not dismissing the entire thing as something that's uncomfortable and awkward, and therefore I don't really know what to do with it. So I want to invite us into the awkward, if you know me, this is like my specialty, I like to do this quite often. Come on into the awkward pool, it's nice, it's lovely. Although these days it just like basically, you know, feels like a bath in your pool. Uh, but it is lovely, like, but we have to understand this. Our cultural reality is this. I have to establish the credibility of the New Testament for you in order for you to receive wives submit to husbands. So I'm going to establish some credibility of the New Testament for just a minute. Okay, so does this passage, and by the way, husbands love your wives, but let me just get to this point. Is this a passage that is for us? Okay, we are saying yes. Some of us and others are going, I don't know, I read that blog. And I got to tell you, it really made a lot of sense. I've read them too. The New Testament, though, if we take the New Testament seriously, which is our hope for us as we begin, the New Testament is unflinching in its description of the Christian home. It is not limited to just one culture. It's in, it's in Ephesus. It's in Colossae. It's in the diaspora, meaning Jewish people, Jewish Christians throughout all of the Roman Empire, whether it be in Eph the, church to, uh, the, the letter to Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, which is what we're in today, or in 1 Peter as he's writing to Jewish Christians all over the empire. It's in all sorts of different areas, but it is unflinching, unflinching in its description of the home. And I've got to ask you, just as we get going, do you believe this is God's description of what your home, the target for your home, or is it just a cultural suggestion for then? So if it's just a cultural suggestion for then, it is a slippery slope, my friends. Because... Ultimately, the question is going to become, so the next time that you read the New Testament and it gets uncomfortable, the next time that you read the New Testament uh, and it says some things about homosexuality or your favorite sin, coveting, let's just say, bitterness, what might be another one, unforgiveness, and it gets uncomfortable and it hits home, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, that was for another time? I mean, he's, God clearly doesn't understand what kind of cultural reality we're in today. It's a super slippery slope, and so what you might do is you get a cultural suggestion and you draw a big picture, which is very subjective around your own personal preferences, and you might apply the, the passages in general, but the details, you'll say, are culturally bound to then and at that time. But 
Perhaps there's something greater here for us to know. Culture is important to understand in the text, but it is not to be used to dismiss it altogether. Instead, we have passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? You should know this. Like, this should be in your heart somewhere. If it's not, perhaps commit it to memory in this next month. But here's what the Bible says. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what is all Scripture? It is breathed out. It is inspired. It is sourced in God himself. And if all Scripture means all Scripture, then all Scripture is therefore profitable for you and me across all times and cultures. We must discern whether or not our modern interpretations of Scripture are more faithful to the text, or if it is in line with our culture's mantra. Which, by the way, the culture's mantra is the same as it's ever been. If you remember, back in uh, Adam and Eve's day, the first culture that ever was, there was a liar there. His name was Satan, and he came along, and after God established the world, and after he put a man in the middle of it, he, he basically said this, like in the NIV, I love how it says it, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. You're free. What a beautiful declaration to, to mankind that you have freedom. And yet, there are boundaries in that freedom. For all of us that hate boundaries, there's real beauty in the fact that God puts limits around which we should not eat, should not consume. But you must not eat, he says in 17, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan came along, and he started casting doubt on God's word from the very beginning by saying, did God really say that? Does that really apply to you? Did he really say these things? And all of a sudden, doubt is cast, not just on the word of God, but on the character of God, because the lie beneath the lie is God's holding out on you. He knows that when you eat of that tree, you'll become just like him. Instead, eat. Eat of that tree where you know good and evil on your own. And you become autonomous. That's what he meant by become like God. Don't be dependent on him. Live independently of what he says, uh, what is good and what is evil, what is life and what is death. Live independently. Decide on your own. It's a choose-your-own-adventure. Of course, it's a lie, and it's the same lie that's been told from the get-go. Instead, there's so much beauty, exactly what Kara prayed, that we would find so much beauty in what God's design for relationships are beyond what we may first see so much beauty in that but God's instructions on how to live within the home is being dismissed not by non-believers friends that's not where the danger comes the danger comes when Christians dismiss it when God's people go it doesn't really matter to me or apply to me and your neighbors look at you and go so what are we doing here we're just going down the buffet line and picking and choosing what we want? Or is it all true, it is all real, and is it all God's word? And we've got to find a way for all of us men in the house that are like, well, I'm, I'm sure I'm glad that God didn't tell me to submit. Yes, he does. He says, submit to him. Submit to his authority. Submit to his rule. 
And also, he tells you to submit to your wife, too. I'll point it out in just a minute. It's going to be great. The call of a Christian life is nothing less than submitting yourself to someone else, whether you are male or female. There's so much beauty in that. I wish I could go so much further into that. But let me just ask, what was your reaction when we read, wives, submit to your husband? For the women in the room, you're going, easy, dude, you better not. Not, we're not going there today. I, I'm not prepared for that. Could you send an email out ahead of time so I can prepare for that? And the dudes in the house are going, I'm glad it's not you. I mean, I'm glad it's not me, and I'm glad it's you. Dismissing ourselves from the reality that we are called to live in. And I would ask, why? Why do we separate ourselves? Or why do we kind of come up with warnings? Is, this, is it not because on some level or another, we have given in to the culture's narrative. That somehow male leadership means oppression. That is not true. If you believe that, then Jesus leads you oppressively. Because he's a male forever and ever. He's a son. Right? Our God is our father. There is so much here that I could sit down on. But instead, what I just want to point you to is that seven times... You see, the idea here is not that culture is ruling our narrative. It's not that, that Paul is writing within a culture, and he is, and he is, he is using some of the cultural norms that they're in, but that's not even the point. It's also not the point for us to look around at our culture and go, well, what is it? How is it that I should relate to my wife and to my kids and to my husband? He says instead seven times in nine verses, in the Lord, or the Lord. It is the Lord that is to be our focus when we start thinking about these, these directives and this narrative that we're in. Why does a wife submit to a husband? Because it is fitting, that's what it says. Wives submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. It fits with a wife that wants to honor Jesus, that she would represent Jesus so well that it would be represented and demonstrated in submission to her husband. And the other side is true too like why would a husband love his wife like christ loved the church laying down his preferences laying down all that he wants to do in life to serve his wife why would a husband do and live in such a way is it not because of jesus's beautiful example of dying for his people that's the standard and so we look at passages like this and i don't care where you are in this whole thing, you get uncomfortable because you realize your relationship doesn't quite look like that. Me too. And so here we are, in the midst of a culture that is screaming from the rooftops to just dismiss all this Bible nonsense as outdated, old-fashioned, and yet the commands are clear. And really the question for us is going to be, what, how do we respond to really difficult, uncomfortable passages as we go through and explain this. So I know you're wrestling. And if you're not wrestling, you're checked out. So one or the other. But you're wrestling at some point in these realities on how to live this out on the daily. So let me just go to the scriptures and help us see what it looks like to live out the gospel at home. Now I want you to understand that in all these household codes, that's what they're called, Household codes. There's found in Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 4, Colossians 3, 
all of them have the context of walking in love, above all, keep loving one another, and above all these, put on love. The context here is above all, love one another. And so it is with wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. Not to mention everything else. So we have to understand all of this is in view of self-sacrificing agape love. Y'all remember that from last week? That agape love out of 1 Corinthians 13? That it's patient and it's kind and it gives good vision, but it also gives good rumble strips so that you don't boast or get arrogant or prideful or, or insist on your own way. All of that is the descriptor here and the umbrella under which these relationships should take off. So it's no wonder then that he's going to give directives on how to love. How is it that we should love our family, our spouse? Well, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, if you don't see this, let me point it out. Paul is being radical, completely radical when he addresses women directly. There is no household code from Plato or Aristotle or in Rome that they would have addressed the female here. It was all towards the male because you're the male and you deserve it and that's the way it is. Paul is being absolutely radical by saying, now wives, you have a responsibility here on how to live out the gospel at home. And that responsibility looks like submitting to your own husband. Good news, it doesn't say women submit to men. So whatever you do at work is different than the way we should do things at home. Whatever you do in the broader context of this world is different than how we do things at home. Just like I'm not called to love every woman like Christ loved the church. I'm called to love my wife like Christ loved the church. What beautiful boundaries, don't you agree? It's wife, submit to your own husband. And this, I have to say, friends, this word for submission is hupotasso, which I knew you were wondering. What is that Greek word? And how do you pronounce it? That's probably not it, but there it is. It means to voluntarily, get this now, voluntarily, you have a choice, voluntarily place yourself underneath another. Voluntarily place yourself underneath Another. There's no way to get around getting underneath, placing yourself underneath someone else. Like I know it's bad, bad, bad vibes these days in the culture to talk about hierarchy and submission and power and authority, but there's no way to do submission without understanding someone else is over you in position and authority, whatever it may be, in placement, position. But I want you to understand it does not mean subjugation. Subjugation is putting someone under you in order to dominate and control them. That is not biblical submission or leadership. It is also, friends, it is not just not subjugation, it is not also not subservience, which is an unquestioning obedience no matter what. So let us not misinterpret biblical language through a cultural lens for us and go, well, that's just A has to equal B. That's just not true. And if you are here, like I said, and you like to pull the submit card, which by the way, I find really funny in my marriage. You may not uh, find it funny in your marriage, but I like to do it just to see what happens. Um, usually terrible things. But it doesn't keep me from doing it. 
which my wife usually goes, have you read Ephesians 5.21 in a while? Which says, submit to one another. And then 5.22 comes along and says, wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, dang. So I got to submit to her as much as she has to submit to me. There is some mutuality here. There is some equality here. As a matter of fact, this whole submit to one another is also rooted in creation, not just the fall narrative, but the creation narrative where you see Adam and Eve, and where was Eve created from? Yes, different than the way that Adam was created, but she was created from his rib, not his toe, and not his skull. Now, you've got to start thinking to yourself, why the rib? Is it not right in the middle, signifying and symbolizing some mutuality that they are both created in the image of God, both created with equal value and worth? So how dare we try to use the word submit with subjugate or subservience? That is not the true idea of submission. But for you wives, voluntarily, there's so much beauty and glory and voluntarily placing yourself underneath a trusting relationship, right? Doesn't that take trust? With your husband. This morning, I was up at 4 a.m. You're welcome. If you think I'm jittery, this is why. But I came back to make sure that everybody was up in the household, and I, I rolled back into my bedroom, and my wife just said, hey, just let's, let's talk for a minute. And I was like, okay. And I said, hey, I know you have an agenda, but I also have an agenda. What makes you want to submit to me? I don't know what you just said, but I bet it was good. And she just said, well, your love for me. And I said, it's interesting. What if I don't love you? She's like, well, it becomes harder. I said, what if your submission is not based on my love, but on Jesus' love for you? She's like, yeah, 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 that's you, of course, yeah, Jesus, always. But, but what would it look like for us to establish relationships that are are based on Jesus' love for you, his leadership for you, and that calls all of us to submit to him. And the Bible says, as is fitting, as it fits for you in the Lord, wives, submit to your own husbands. But the husbands are not off the hook, right? It goes on, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You see, there it is. She was right. It's easier to submit to a husband that loves well and is not harsh. This idea of harshness is to embitter your wife. And everybody knows, if you've been married five minutes, you know the buttons to push to make an embittered wife. You know. And you, and you could easily use your position and power that God's given you to lead an embitterment. And that will lead you nowhere. And so God calls us men, husbands, to love in such a way that is self-sacrificing, and then he gives us the boundary to not cause bitterness. Husbands um, is how you lead your home through position, because I'm the man, that's why, or by laying down your life for the sake of your wife and your children. You use your position to kind of throw your weight around, or which leads ultimately to embitterment, or will you lead in such a way, submitted unto Jesus, leading like he leads, like Christ loved the church, so as not to embitter those, but to endear those to you as you follow Jesus. And for you kids in the room, don't worry, the household code doesn't stop with husbands or wives. 
also with the children. My children all of a sudden will not make eye contact with me. This is going to go good. It says, seek to honor, right? That's what he says, basically. Obey your parents in everything for, why? Why would you want to do that? Because God is pleased with that kind of life. If nothing else, you will please your Father in heaven by honoring your parents. And notice, it doesn't say just fathers. If we think it's a patriarchal world, it says parents, mothers, and fathers. Ephesians 6, 1 1 through 3 say this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. If you want to live a long life, God says, honor your parents. It's obedience with a promise, and there's a lot of beauty in that. Now, we talked about wives. We've talked about husbands. We've talked about children just briefly. And then he switches gears a little bit. And he says, now, all right, I got one more double dip here, not just for the husbands, but for all those of you who are husbands that are also fathers. There's a particular way to lead in your home. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This idea, again, for provoking is to cause them to be bitter. Ephesians 6, 4 says, I like the NIV, it says, don't exasperate your children. You've all, you probably all exasperated your children on one level or another. I do. I know I have. Matter of fact, was playing softball in the backyard with my daughter not too long ago, and she just had enough of me exasperating her. And she stood up to me. And I had to apologize later. It was terrible. But it was the best thing that could have ever happened that day. Because I was being sarcastic and rude, and I just wasn't having it. And she just like, I'm out. I'm done. Actually, I said, I'm out, and then she came back later, and she goes, I got a problem with you. Oh, dang, yeah, let's go. Sorry for embarrassing you. I love you. But I was leading in an exasperational way, causing her bitterness and frustration, not in love, not for her good. So Paul says, fathers, y'all got to step up. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Colossians 3 says that. Ephesians 6 says exasperate. And here's the deal, y'all. Statistics will tell you, statistics will tell you that no matter how great the mother does in the home, this is really disheartening for a lot of reasons. No matter how good the mother does in the home, the children most likely follow the father's faith, whether that's a good example or a bad one. Statistics will tell you they usually and typically follow the father. Why? Because this is how God has ordained the family. That they are charged. They are charged in a very specific way in the home to lead their children up in the fear and discipline of the Lord, it says in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The father sets the tone. And so, fathers, what tone are you setting? What pace are you setting? If you looked at the normal rhythms of your life, especially as you get into the fall, what are you discipling them into? The fine line that I have to walk is, I think I'm a better discipler unto a good baseball player with Moses than I am into a Jesus follower. 
I'm more committed to that with my tennis player or my softball player or my baseball player than I am to actually modeling out for them what it looks like to follow Jesus on the regular. Now, maybe I'm asking them to follow Jesus as we play baseball and softball, but I'm not as clear there. I know how to, like, field a ground ball correctly and teach that, but can I teach the basics of the faith and be as committed or more in that way? If your sons and daughters grow up to mimic you, how you lead the home, what model will they follow? John Tyson put out a book not too long ago that was called um, The Intentional Father. Great book if you haven't read it. Um, I've been re-going through it a little bit this week in preparation, and I was reminded of his five types of fathers. This is just for the fathers in the room now. I want you to hear it. There's the irresponsible father. This is the deadbeat dad, the no contact, like nothing. No relationship, no child support, no responsibility, squat, nothing, irresponsible. There's the ignorant father who, due to a lack of self-awareness on how he wreaks havoc in the home, still generally has no idea how to lead. There is no effort for the ignorant father to get better at actually becoming a father. There's the inconsistent father. They have... They are torn by personal ambition as they prioritize work and hobbies, and they pass on no significance or identity to their kids, other than whatever they found to be significant themselves. No, no personal identity of discovering who they are and what they like and helping them cultivate that. That's the inconsistent father. The involved father, which I most resonate with probably, does a lot right. They show up to their kids' games. They might even coach them on occasion. But they don't understand their children enough through asking really intentional questions and just being with them. There's always a project, always something to tackle together. And there is nobility in this, but there is more than just simply providing for his family and teaching right and wrong. Instead, John Tyson says, this is what an intentional father looks like. And I'll put this up here for our vision of what this might look like. Deeply invested in discovering who his children are, not what they're good at, who they are, and how we can help them reach their redemptive potential. He seeks to understand the children God has given him and wants to form them into young persons who can fulfill their purpose. He sees parenting as central to his call before God and does it all with all of his might. This kind of father leaves multi-generational blessing in the lives of his children. It's not enough to be present dads. We have to be intentional while we are present. It is no secret, friends, that young people are leaving the church in droves, right? It's no secret that many of us, bringing them into the gathering, hopefully they learn how to be in big church, that they learn how to grow up and be adults and hear things that are difficult and digest them and, and talk about it with their community. It's, it, we're, we're trying our best to disciple them here in any gathered space. I think all throughout America, everyone's doing their best with what they've got in a church context. But perhaps the problem doesn't just lie with the organized structure of the church, but on the church that's you and me, living this out at home. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a high bar. And if you notice, there's not a lot of prescription here. He just says, do this, do that. So that's it? Like just, just lead in not a harsh way? 
Just lead as Christ loved the church? What do you mean just lead as Christ loves the church? Just love as Christ loves the church? That's, that's an unending amount of possibilities on how I might love and lead well. It's an unending possibility if you look at how Jesus submitted to his father as is fitting in the Lord. It's an unending possibility of how wives might submit to their husbands if you look at the model of Jesus and how he lived, consistently submitted to his father. Perhaps we need to think about this in our home, especially as we enter into new rhythms. The church is our first priority in making disciples, but I would say that you are here to make disciples. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to make money. We're not here to have a good reputation or to build a following. We are here to make disciples, and that starts in our homes. So friends, do our relationships model the kind of reverence, grace, and respect which are fitting in the Lord? Our fathers modeling out what true agape love looks like with their wife and with their kids, laying down your life, your preferences, your hobbies, your time, your free time, your Saturdays, your golf game, your time, your money, everything for the sake of seeing the gospel flourish in your family. So right now, you're probably overwhelmed, so let me just give you some really practical things to walk away with. And I just want to use an Old Testament verse to give us two things. Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. This is Moses um, basically laying down the law for a second time to this new people in Israel. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It always starts with who God is. And he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That might sound familiar to what Jesus said. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Memorize them. Put them in your heart. You shall, then he says this about how we do this in the home. Teach them diligently to your children and talk to them. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, on the way to school, it, like pr praying for your kids in that carpool line that you're frustrated about, that they're cutting you off and everything else. What would it look like if you just prayed for, in those moments and discipled them in those moments? Two things, teach them diligently the kind of God with which you serve and talk about all of the things and all of the ways throughout all of life. Teach and talk, teach and talk on repeat. Teach some things and talk about it over and over and over again. So some tools and then we're going to end. We haven't brought this out in a long time. If I raised, if I said, hey, if you've got um, school-age kids, this is like pre-K through fifth, to like raise your hand if you ever did this. Don't. But if you did, in these days and ages, there was a time at the Grove where the vast majority of us would have raised our hands. That we're using this devotional, which has five days of devotional that are directly tied to what they're learning in Grove Kids right now. It literally is a free tool that we try to put in your hand so that all you have to do is open it up, ask a couple of questions, read a couple of passages, and work through this with your K through fifth grader or pre-K through fifth grader, whatever you can handle. This is a beautiful tool. That's why we do the curriculum that we do. We don't want it to just be a Sunday thing. We want it to be an everyday thing, but we can't do that for you. We can put tools in your hands, and what we would ask you to do is take this tool and build the house.
Family discipleship starts with you at home. Perhaps you've gone through that and you've got older kids like I do, and you go, okay, two out of three probably aren't doing that, but what else can I do? Man, start with the New City Catechism. It's an app. You can download it. It's really good. It asks you 52 questions about the faith, one for every week. Just do them. Teach and talk. They give you the question, and then you click again, and it gives you the answer. You don't even have to know the answer. It's great. It'll even read it to you if you want it to. There's a shorter version and a longer version. New City Catechism. And if those two things are too complicated for you, just pick it up and read it. It's not, it's not beyond that. I'll guarantee you, if you committed your next month, week, five days of just reading this around the dinner table, breakfast table, lunch table, at, di- at nighttime, whenever, one time a day, if you committed yourself to reading, just start in the book of Mark if you don't know where to start because it gets crazy in a hurry. Jesus starts defeating demons like chapter one. I don't know about you, but like my son's in on that. Demons, all right. I don't know what that's about, but Jesus wins. Let's do it. Start there. And I'll, I'll guarantee you it will prove fruitful. If nothing else, just start with God's word. If it's over complex and you're overwhelmed, Mark chapter 1. So question, as we, as we close with making disciples at home, wife, husband, father, mother, single, we're not off the hook here either. We also have some understanding here about how Christ loved the church and what he's calling us to. Whatever station you find yourself in, What's one thing, one takeaway for the day? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we just need one thing. Perhaps it's nothing I said, but something your spirit said to remind us how to live. This is uncomfortable, difficult, and yet completely relevant to our lives. Lord, we want to be people that make up the rules on our own when you've established the rules for us. And yes, there's nuance in how we apply this. Yes, there is difficulty in all of these spaces. I know for a fact there are women in this room, wives in this room, that do not have faithful husbands. Don't even believe. Are they supposed to submit to their husbands? Yeah. As is fitting in the Lord. So I pray that you give them strength. I pray that you would, more than anything, give, put revival and a new life, and you, O Holy Spirit of life, regenerate the hearts of the husbands. And it's probably flip-flop that there's some, some men in the room or, or maybe listening to this online that their wife is not yet a believer. And so we also pray, Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts, that they would see the value and the beauty that's far surpassing than the cultural narrative but the grand story of the gospel. So much beauty in that. For the kids in the room that just think this is all just a bunch of adults talking about adult things, I pray that you give them insight and wisdom beyond their age that they may honor their mother and father. Lord, you've got ways that we need to obey this personally, 
individually and yet also corporately. Would you help us see them? Would you help us honor you in all these things? And may we be wholly devoted to King Jesus. No matter if we agree or disagree, prefer or not prefer, may we be wholeheartedly submitted to you, O King. You're our King. You're not our president. We didn't elect you. You elected us as your king, and you brought us into the family of faith so that we could be your sons and daughters by which we would give you honor and glory for all time. May that start here and now, especially in the difficult things. In Jesus' name, amen.